1450 AM, WKXL 103.9 FM in the Capital Region. 101.9 FM, our brand new signal in the Manchester area. Kale and Company, presented by Weed Family Automotive, located at 124 Store Street in Concord. WeedFamilyAutomotive.com. And very happy to say that our guest on this edition of Kale and Company is Anna Brown, Director of Research and Analysis at Citizens Count, citizenscount.org, and on Facebook as well, and uh, all over the place. You can't miss them. Uh, Citizens Count and uh, Anna, how are you today? I'm doing great, but plenty to talk about, so I hope you're buckled up and ready to go. Oh, boy, isn't there? <laughs> I, it, it's hard to know where to begin with so much going on uh, here in the state of New Hampshire. Yes, the legislature came back with a bang last week in case of the, any, any of the legislators, uh, legislators, oh my goodness, any of the listeners who may have missed it, the legislature gathered again for the first time in several months. They met in Manchester at the Doubletree Expo Center, which is a hotel downtown to get that social distancing as much in place as you can when there's over 400 people in a room together. And there were a few surprising votes. Last week, uh, but also public hearings going on all this week, all next week. And it looks to be voting on over a thousand bills all told this year. Wow. So what what were some of the surprising results in the opening session? One of the votes that I found most surprising was on a bill that legalizes possession of marijuana and home growing, but no sales. So when you think about marijuana legalization, you usually think about what's going on, say, in Massachusetts, where you have dispensaries, where you go in and the, and the state is pulling in all this tax revenue. So this is a bill that would say, all right, you can't arrest people for this. They can do it in their homes, but we're not going to set up sales tax or business licenses or anything like that to do this. Now, the legislature in general has always been more open to marijuana legalization than the governor, but the governor's veto threat has been enough to really stall out the issue in several years. Now, HB 629, this bill I'm talking about, passed with a super majority. So that means there were enough votes in favor of this bill that they could override Sununu's almost certain veto if it gets to that. That bill goes to the Senate now, and and it remains to be seen how many senators are going to get on board with that. But if you get a super majority in the Senate, then it's a lot of momentum going forward, and it looks like they'd be over to be able to override Sununu's veto. So there is that uh, possibility of uh, marijuana legalization for sale over the counter, like in Massachusetts, uh, here in New Hampshire. Yes, and let's not forget. So this this bill was a bit of a surprise because, for me anyway, because there are a lot of other proposals to legalize marijuana one way or another this coming year. So this was a bill hangover from last year, and my expectation, many other people's expectation, was that they just kind of set it aside and say fresh start. So there are many routes that this could happen this year. And a really interesting one is a proposal to amend New Hampshire's Constitution to allow marijuana according to the Constitution. So that's unique because that requires three-fifths majority of the House and Senate to vote in favor, so another supermajority situation, but not as high as the threshold to override a veto. And then it goes straight to the voters. So it bypasses Governor Sununu, and you'd see that question on the 22 general election ballot, saying, should we legalize marijuana? And if it passed the public with two-thirds, once again, that's another route. So we have all these different paths for how it could happen and what it could look like, and gosh, so, so that vote was a lot of momentum right out of the gate, and it really is starting to look like that will happen this year. 
How often do uh, New Hampshire constitutional amendments uh, take place? Honestly, considering that it's a founding fundamental document, it probably changes a little more often than people might expect. So, for example, there was a change to the Constitution pretty recently. Uh, Listeners may remember a couple years ago on the ballot voting for a constitutional right to privacy that passed back in 2018. It all, there was also another constitutional amendment that year that gave taxpayers standing to sue the government because that had ended up being an issue related to a school funding type of issue. So the New Hampshire Constitution changes slightly more, more often than you might think, and certainly way more often than your federal constitution. And here's another fun fact. New Hampshire's constitution, when it was written, the framers thought to themselves that it should be kind of a, a flexible document. And New Hampshire is a unique state in that every 10 years, the the Secretary of State has to put a question on the ballot that says, should New Hampshire have a constitutional convention, which is a meeting to basically rewrite the whole thing if you want to. And every 10 years like clockwork, that means in 2022, voters are going to be asked, should we have a constitutional convention in New Hampshire? Mm. Well, speaking, I always love your fun facts, Anna Brown. They're always a a big addition to the program. We appreciate that. Uh, Since last we spoke... Uh, we have a new Secretary of State for the first time in a long time. As Secretary of State, uh, Bill Gardner has retired, and he's been replaced by uh, the Deputy Secretary for a long time, David Scanlon, who will finish the one year left on Gardner's term. Uh, what What will you remember most about uh, Bill Gardner? Oh, gosh. I think what I will remember most is perhaps not the first thing other people would say, which might be about the New Hampshire presidential primary, notably. My memories of Secretary of State Bill Gardner are often when he would show up to bill hearings and provide the most exhaustive, extensive histories of any policy he was testifying on you could possibly imagine. He was a font of information, and in some ways I will remember him as almost a historian of New Hampshire politics because he had been around so long and it was, it was always fun to hear those really, really long, really long histories that he would tell. I remember I was researching a bill about whether or not clerks can open absentee ballot envelopes before Election Day. And gosh, he went all the way back to the, to the turn of the, the 20th century talking about how that <laughs> progress had progressed over the years. So what are we going to do without him? I, I mean, it won't be the same. The question on my mind is, will this start to be a more political office, more contentious election? The way it works in New Hampshire, the Secretary of State is responsible for overseeing elections, which means, you know, managing all the ballots and the recounts and all that, as well as business filings, trust filings, things like that. And everyone in New Hampshire that's listening has probably only ever known Bill Gardner to do this, has not known it to be a very political office, although... He did get heat in recent years for supporting some voting restrictions, some residency requirements, those sorts of things. Nonetheless, you almost never saw him getting challenged. There was one time in recent years, Colin Van Ostern, a former executive counselor, did mount a challenge. It came close, but ultimately Bill Gardner carried the day once again. So this is an election that happens in the legislature. It's not something that you will ever see on your ballot, but... There's no reason to believe why it couldn't start to get political. You couldn't start to see candidates every year from the Democratic and Republican parties. So Dave Scanlon, who is taking over the, the office now, is a Republican. 
he's I, I have seen him testify at various public hearings. I don't would say that he will probably carry on very much in the tradition of Bill Gardner, where it's a largely nonpartisan office, although, like I said, there was some sort of dipping the toe into more controversial issues in recent years. So it's possible that the legislature and everyone will just say, Let, let's keep this tradition going. You know, this, this, there's a lot of institutional knowledge here with Dave Scanlon. He's doing a good job. We'll just go for it. Or maybe we'll see a Democratic candidate emerge to challenge Dave Scanlon. So that's, that's the test. This, this coming year, I think, it's going to be a really definitive moment on whether this starts to become a more political office, as we have seen elections administration become much more politicized in the past few years. Well, Bill Gardner made it uh, such a nonpartisan office that I, I bet many people uh, are not aware of, of his uh, political party. I, I know that, that uh, he, he's a Democrat, but I bet a lot of people are not aware of that because he, he did make it so bipartisan or, or nonpartisan. Yes, in fact, you know, some people, if they were asked, probably would, would, would guess wrong. They'd probably say, is he a Republican? Yeah, no, yeah. he's a Democrat. For, yeah. And, and, but yeah, it, that never really became a defining part of, of his, his running that office. No, uh, not at all. And uh, congratulations to him on the, on the great work that uh, he has done for so many years in the state of New Hampshire. And, you know, there, there's some who say uh, that, uh, you know, there may not be a New Hampshire first in the nation primary today without these the work of Bill Gardner. Like I said, you asked me for how I will remember him, yeah. but I th- and, and I had my own take, but I think most people are going to remember him as the guardian of that first in the nation status. All yeah. his relationships with all the people involved in that decision making, you know, really empowering him to, to lobby and work behind the scenes to make that happen every year. Or I should say every four years. Yeah. But it seems like every year because it's it, it's a, it's almost <laughs> it does. when you're in New Hampshire it always feels like presidential elections. Yeah, right, right. Uh, but uh, I, you know, it, it's uh, it's uh, you know uh, uh, an amazing career that he had. Were you at all surprised that he did step down when he did? You know, it's funny because at the time I remember seeing on Twitter the announcement that he was going to have a press conference, and in my mind I was like, I, I can't imagine is he stepping. Is this happening? Is this really happening? But of course, after he did it, I had to remember that the last time he was elected, he had been saying, you know, this is going to be my last time. He had said, this will be my last presidential primary. So even though in the moment it was so shocking because he's, he's been in this office for so many decades, he, he did tell people that was his plan. This is what he has been saying for a couple of years now. Yeah. Well, I guess he lived up to his word. And uh, so uh, Bill Gardner out as uh, Secretary of State and uh, David Scanlon in at least until the end of the current term, and then we shall see uh, what takes place uh, after that. So, uh, Anna, is is COVID still the number one issue in the state? Is that the the state the the, the issue I should say that gets you know the the most talked about, the most coverage uh, in the state of New Hampshire? Holy moly! Let me tell you, I talked about how there were probably about a thousand bills, new bills that are coming in this year, and dozens of them, dozens of them are related to COVID-19 in one way or another. You, you, it's, it's interesting. I really think it's, it's when you look at how many bills are proposed on a related issue, it sort of gives you a little bit of a temperature test on how hot is this issue, in, in, in the legislature's mind anyway, if not the public. So covering and, and all sides of the issue. 
There are several bills that are looking to block the federal vaccine mandates or stop individual businesses from doing that. There's bills to ban mask mandates. And then there's also bills on the flip side, which, granted, I think would have trouble in the Republican-controlled legislature. But nonetheless, bills that explicitly protect the right of employers to require testing or vaccines, allow the university system to start requiring vaccines. A law passed last year blocked that. There's a bill to make it a felony to harm an essential worker. There's a bill to allow vaccines without parental consent for minors over, or would allow vaccines without parental consent for minors over age 16. It runs the gamut. It's absolutely where I'm seeing the most legislation this year. Yeah, I guess that uh, should not be too much of a surprise. Now, I think around the last time we chatted here on this program, it was uh, just a, a day or two after the executive council rejected uh, that uh, COVID aid money. And then uh, all of a sudden, shortly thereafter, they did an about face. How does that stand right now? So right now, uh, since then, the executive council, as well as then the legislative committee that is responsible for approving these federal grants, they also got on board with it. And there was an interesting moment there. Senate President Chuck Morse, who is expected to be announcing his run for U.S. Senate very soon, mm-hmm. came out in support of accepting these federal funds and took a moment to sort of call out other people around the table saying, "I, you know, I am a patriot. I do believe in the Constitution. This is the right thing to do. Don't criticize me for it. I'm paraphrasing greatly, of course. But it, it, was, a, it was a notable moment because this is the type of vote that certain members of the Republican Party will probably be criticizing him on in the upcoming U.S. Senate election. And so, so that's where it stands. We're getting the funds. They're coming in. And you haven't seen really any other big votes since then in terms of accepting those federal grants. So um, what happened, do you think, uh, that, that uh, made them change their minds so, so quickly from, you know, a uh, four to one margin to, uh, you know, acceptance uh, of the federal grants? It was a very interesting vote for a couple reasons. The vote did not have a great amount of public notice beforehand, and it was also accompanied by a resolution that basically says, you know, we oppose the federal vaccine mandate, and just because we're accepting this money doesn't mean we support what the federal government is doing related to COVID-19. A resolution is basically just a statement of opinion, It's not really going to have any legal impact, but nonetheless, it seems to provide enough cover for those Republicans on the executive council to change their vote and accept these funds. So what changed? I would say probably there was definitely lobbying behind the scenes from Governor Sununu's office. He was very critical when they rejected the funds. And I think, to, to be honest, I think that they probably did feel a little more comfortable making this vote without tons of protesters on site, because as I said, there wasn't a whole lot of public notice before this vote was scheduled, which meant that there wasn't a chance to really organize a massive, raucous protest like we had seen at some of the earlier executive council meetings. Well, uh, recently, in fact, uh, as we record this uh, on a Wednesday, uh, the executive council uh, invited members of the the public and the media to uh, call in and listen uh, to their most recent recent session, uh, were you tuned in, Anna? I tuned in for part of it. The the big vote today that people may be aware of, or rather, you and I are recording this on a, on another day. So <laughs> there was a vote to uh, not accept federal funds 
that would go to Planned Parenthood and other family planning providers. So that was a real notable vote when that there was that opportunity to call into the meeting. Not terribly surprising since that's how the vote had gone in the past, but a little interesting that Governor Sununu was pretty vocal in his displeasure over this. He was known on the Executive Council for accepting these contracts. He, he had said that he's pro-choice, and so he voted in favor of these contracts in the past. And he made a comment to the effect of, maybe I'll just start trying to reintroduce this every week until they change their votes. <laughs> so do you have any idea how many people did call in? I haven't seen the numbers. No, I'm not sure. My understanding was this was partly a response to rising COVID cases in New Hampshire. And so they're basically reopening that virtual access rather than requiring people to be in person. So I, I, I honestly, I, I don't know. Ho- hopefully a lot because it's always, there's always a lot going on in New Hampshire and it's hard to keep track of. So you got to have a lot of ears and eyes on it. Uh, before we get to the, uh, the races that are, that are underway uh, for, for the various offices, uh, what can you tell us about uh, the recent discussion of, of what software should be used at the Statehouse? That seems to be uh, an issue these days. So there are some bills going through related to the use of open-source software in New Hampshire. And without getting too technical and going into the weeds, I think I can provide some general context that... Well, that's a good thing, because it would be over my head for sure if you did that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I do think that in general, New Hampshire government, I, I, I don't want to sound too critical in this, but I would say we are not on the cutting edge of state when it comes to technology that is used and how that operates. That was actually going back to our conversation earlier today about Secretary Bill Gardner. One of the criticisms was that his office was not using new technology, updating new ways for businesses to file online and different things related to that. I can also vouch for the fact that the state legislative website, well, they did recently undergo a redesign, still leaves a lot to be desired in terms of mobile access, ease of use, user interfaces, all of that. So, I, I don't know how well legislators in general are going to respond to these very technical bills because they are also, in generally, we have one of the oldest legislatures on average in the nation. These people are not technical experts. Why would they be? They're, they're, it's basically a volunteer legislature. They're paid $100 a year plus mileage. So I'm not so sure that these bills are really going to go anywhere at this point, but it'll be interesting to see. There are also some bills this year that are related to cryptocurrency, and those that's another area where I think it might be a little too cutting edge for our legislators at this point. Ah, cryptocurrency uh, making legislation, huh? Yep, it's, it's yeah. making a return. And so that's yeah. related to um, banking, for example, you know, and, and how these different assets are treated and whether certain organizations can start um, maybe doing exchanges with these. So, like I said, I, I, I wouldn't really see it going very, very far in the New Hampshire legislature at this point. Previous attempts to sort of address cryptocurrency and state law have not, not really taken off. But New Hampshire in general has been known as something of a hub for cryptocurrency action because free, this free state movement in New Hampshire, a lot of libertarians in New Hampshire invested very early in Bitcoin. So there's been a lot of de- developments around that, and there's the, also the pending case around Ian Freeman in Keene regarding whether he was operating an illegal exchange or not, whether there was mo- money laundering involved because of 
the work that he was doing trying to set up, you know, Bitcoin ATMs and stuff like that. Anna Brown is with us here on this edition of uh, Kale & Company, Director of Research and Analysis at Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. You can check them out on Facebook. Uh, Instagram, Anna? Uh, we are not on Instagram. Okay. We, we, we do have a very, very, Nor very minimal Instagram presence. <laughs> but I, w- I would say our most active is on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Stay with us, Anna. We have to take a quick break. Kale & Company presented by Weed Family Automotive, 124 Store Street in Concord. WeedFamilyAutomotive.com. Welcome back. It's Kale & Company. Great to have you with us at 1450 AM, WKXL, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM now in the Manchester area. Presented by Weed Family Automotive, 124 Store Street in Concord. Anna Brown is with us, Director of Research and Analysis at Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. They're on Facebook, and it's a uh, terrific site uh, on uh, citizenscount.org. You can catch up uh, on uh, many newspapers and online publications. It's a terrific uh, resource for anyone is, you know, who just simply wants to be informed uh, in the uh, Granite State. And Anna, since last we've spoken, the New Hampshire Republican Party has, well, let's let's put it this way, uh, two more U.S. senatorial candidates in the in the uh, state, uh, I should say, state Senate President Chuck Morse, uh, who is going to announce uh, very shortly, and by the time people hear this, probably has, and Londonderry Town Manager Kevin Smith. So Morse and Smith uh, will be joining General Bald, uh, Don Bolduck in the a battle to take on incumbent Senator Maggie Hassan in November. So uh, uh, tell us uh, your thoughts about the two newest candidates in Kevin Smith and Chuck Morse. Kevin Smith and Chuck Morse, Senate President Chuck Morse, currently have really strong connections to the New Hampshire political community in particular. So that might be a little different than the previous campaign we saw with Corky Messner, where although he was involved in New Hampshire politics, he also had those ties to Colorado. Kevin Smith has been town manager in Londonderry since 2013. He only recently resigned to take on this campaign. And Senate President Chuck Morris has been in the Senate for quite some time and is really well known in New Hampshire also in terms of his incredible fundraising capacity. And he also has that infrastructure in place as an elected official. So both of these candidates, even though we've only started talking about them in the past couple weeks, I think can really get on the ground and get moving really quickly. And they do pose a threat to General Don Bulldog, who until now seemed like the the default winner, right? There were some other candidates who had filed with the FEC on the Republican side, but they're lesser-known candidates that don't have that infrastructure in place that looks really threatening right off the bat. I think the election will end up being a little bit of General Bulldog versus Kevin and Smith and Chuck Morris are both kind of maybe, I would say, slightly more moderate. They've you know, for example, Senate President Morse was saying, you know, voted for that federal vaccine funding. Kevin Smith has made some comments on, on Twitter, you know, supporting uh, democracy in general in terms of when you're thinking about the 2020 election or what happened on January 6th. And then General Don Bulldog, meanwhile, would fall more in line with, I would say, right wing sort of Trump side of the party. And he even had some sort of indirect interact, interaction with the former president. When, it, uh, when he was talking about some of the formal mi- military officials and comments they were making. So could it be Bulldog and the Trumpers versus then Smith and Moore, sort of a more traditional New Hampshire uh, moderate Republican take? 
that's kind of, think, I think, how it's going to break down. And then how Kevin Smith and Chuck Morris separate themselves will be interesting to see. Kevin Smith does have a background with Cornerstone Action, so he might take on a sort of a really focusing on social conservative issues. That could be a potential differentiation for him. But then again, in his role as town manager, he's been all about economic development. So I'm not sure that he will go back to sort of driving those social conservative issues as the cornerstone of his campaign. So you have three candidates uh, right now. Do you think there will be more? I think this is probably going to be it. You and I in the past had talked. Kelly Ayotte almost immediately ruled it out. Frank Ginta said he's out. Scott Brown said he's out. Actually, did Frank Ginta say? I just said that, but now I'm doubting myself. But I'm fairly, I'm fairly sure Frank Ginta is, is, is not going to be jumping in. Scott Brown said he's definitely not jumping in because he's supporting his wife and her run in the 1st Congressional District. So those, those were some of the biggest players. Corky Messner, of course, had also not ruled it out, but I haven't really heard anything since then. I think the holidays were sort of that time for people to consider, and you will notice right away when we came back in January, both Kevin Smith and Chuck Morris came out right out of the gate with announcements saying, hey, this is coming, I'm going to be running. So I think that this will round it out, because, gosh, the primary is not that far away. It's right. less than yeah. a year away. Yeah. So you, you really have to move at this point. Yeah. Uh, the only other uh, candidate that, that might be still harboring some, some thoughts would be uh, media mogul Bill Binney. Uh, there's you know been some talk about that. Not, not impossible, although, like I said, I feel that the, the timeline is short at this point. And so unless he's going to... Or let's put it this way. If he made an announcement at this point, I would be a little surprised because the field is getting sick. The field is getting a little sick, and and the time is short. All right. So we, we will see if this is the this is the field. Smith, Morse, and Bolduck uh, running on the Republican side to challenge uh, the incumbent uh, Maggie Hassan. So uh, the first district congressional seat currently occupied by Chris Pappas is uh, being hotly contested by a number of Republican hopefuls, including uh, Gail Huff Brown, uh, Matt Mowers, and uh, Caroline Levitt. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, all three of those candidates, as you well know, Anna, have ties to Donald Trump. Absolutely, and I think that it'll be a little bit of a contest between them about where that en- endorsement is going to end up, if indeed. Former President Trump becomes such an important factor in terms of those Republican endorsements, which many people at this point do seem to think he's going to be wielding a lot of influence in 2022. Also, don't forget State Representative Tim Baxter. He is also in the running, and while he may seem slightly less on the national stage since he has just been at this state level, uh, he's had gained attention for calling for an entire audit of the 2022 or 2020 election in New Hampshire, and so he will have a platform in the state house in the coming months to try to draw attention to that issue, and once again could be attractive to former President Trump, who of course continues to say that there was widespread fraud, including in New Hampshire. Although Governor Sununu disputes that, uh, he says there was no fraud; that we have very secure elections. It will be interesting to see who. If any of the candidates get uh, the endorsement of the uh, former president, Donald Trump, but, uh, uh, of course, uh, the, the husband of uh, Gail Huff Brown, Scott Brown, a former senator as, as well, served uh, as an ambassador 
uh, in the uh, you know in the Trump administration to New Zealand and Samoa. Matt Mowers, he was with the uh, the State Department under Donald Trump, and uh, Caroline Levitt served uh, in the press secretary's office. So it it will be interesting, and uh, you know maybe he'll just leave it alone. Who knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> that that might be funny. It, it might be a contest between all of them to get his attention, and then he just decides he can't, he he can't choose a favorite child, and they're, and they're all his favorite. <laughs> and, and he'll give it to Mr. Baxter, right? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there may be a couple others running in that in that race as well, but certainly those are are the most uh, high profile candidates uh, announced thus far. So. Uh, uh, who, who's raising the most money among those three, the three of the major candidates, or, or Baxter as well? Who's raising the most money, do you know? Well, I have not seen, I have not looked at, I should say, the latest campaign fundraising data from, from this last quarter that came through, but I do know in general that Matt Mowers has had the benefits of already running a campaign in New Hampshire yeah. for Congress just two years ago. So he came out of the gate kind of with that war chest already starting to accumulate. So that has been a major advantage. And also, I think, probably going to be an advantage with name recognition. Having run in the past, you know, I hate to say that voters are shallow like that, but it's true. You, you, when you recognize a name, you're just more open to remembering information about that person or connecting them with different issues. Yeah, and uh, certainly name recognition has a lot to do with it, uh, a lot to do with you know who people vote for. I mean, there's no question about it. They'll they'll hear the name and uh, say, "Oh yeah, that's that's the guy that uh, you know I'm going to fill in the circle for or pull the lever or whatever it is." So yeah, you're absolutely right. What about endorsements, though? Uh, I mean, for the most part, now President Trump might be an exception here, but for the most part, do endorsements mean a whole lot you know, from newspapers or other you know, political uh, people or newspapers or? Uh, unions, uh, do they mean a whole lot? I will be honest. I have not seen endorsements have a really big impact in New Hampshire. Once again, if we're setting aside former President Trump, because we all know that he has had outsized influence on elections, I would say when, if you're looking at a union leader endorsement or union or a teacher's union endorsement, I I haven't really. We've asked questions actually on our Facebook page. We've thrown that out there in previous years, just saying, you know, when these big name endorsements come, you know, maybe I, I don't know, Vice President Kamala Harris or Governor, Virginia Governor Ron DeSantis. You know, if, if these people are coming out and choosing candidates or, or saying that, does that really influence you? And uh, according to just people on the street, if you will, these comments that we get, people say no. Now, it, does it work somewhere in the back of their head? That's certainly possible. But I do get the feeling that in New Hampshire, in these congressional races, it often depends more on that, that local network of people you know. And if you're seen as sort of that true New Hampshireite instead of a carpetbagger, right? I feel like there have been a couple candidates over the past few years that have been labeled carpetbagger, whether it was uh, Mara Sullivan, who was running in Portsmouth on the Democratic side a few years ago. She kind of got called that. Matt Mowers in the last election cycle kind of got called that. Corky Messner kind of got called that. It doesn't seem... To ring ghosts that well with voters, it doesn't really seem to strike that chord. It kind of turns them off. So I would almost say, you know, in a weird way, proving your New Hampshire ties matters more than having some out-of-state figures endorse you. Yeah, unless maybe you're a member of that particular union that endorses the candidate. Outside of that, it probably doesn't have too much swagger, I, I wouldn't think. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe local elections. I have noticed, for example, the Manchester 
mayoral election, it did seem that union endorsements, whether it was police or teachers or whoever, you know, that did seem to maybe have some, some more influence on voters and voter turnout. But I think that's also partly because those endorsing organizations might be doing more to get out the local vote, since a lot of people just don't vote in the local elections. Anna Brown is here. Always great analysis. Anna is the Director of Research and Development at Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. We'll take a quick break and uh, be back to talk uh, a little more politics here today on Kale & Company on WKXL, presented by Weed Family Automotive, 124 Store Street in Concord, weedfamilyautomotive.com. Welcome back to 1450 AM WKXL, 103.9 FM in the Concord area, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond. Kale and Company presented by Weed Family Automotive, 124 Store Street in Concord. Give them a call, make an appointment, 603-225-7988. Anna Brown with us, Director of Research and Development at Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. And don't forget to check out their Facebook page as well. They have the, the questions there that uh, Anna referenced a few moments ago and uh, some, some great topics that you touch on and, and some equally great uh, comments that you get uh, from your followers. Yes, we have a daily discussion post on our Facebook page, and we're always trying to highlight new issues that people may not be seeing in the news, you know, what public hearings are coming up, what, what's sliding under the radar, because it is certainly true that with a thousand bills, it's just impossible for the local press to cover everything. And, and ideally, I think a lot of times when you're looking at some of these lesser known issues, that sometimes can be a great place to have really good fertile discussion and move policy conversations forward without going in with that sort of partisan knee-jerk reaction. We do post also about, of course, those really hot issues that everyone seems to be talking about, such as vaccine mandates, et cetera. But we, like I said, we try to mix it in with some things that you may not have heard about as well. Absolutely. So check it out, folks. Well, the District 2 race, the congressional race, uh, features uh, five or six Republican candidates trying to win the seat currently held by Democrat Annie Custer. Uh, doesn't seem to be as much buzz about this one in D2 as compared to uh, D1, Anna? Well, that's pretty simple, and that's because the 2nd District tends to have a lot more Democratic voters than Republican voters. Ann McLean-Custer has won that district since 2012. There hasn't been a really competitive race there for her in a little bit. So when you're looking on the Republican side, if I had to say who has the best chance, just my, my personal opinion in the moment, I would say Jeffrey Cousins. He is a brewer from the 2nd District area, and so he's a businessman in New Hampshire. He's been involved with the trustees of the Community College System of New Hampshire. He's a former national security professional, so he's embedded in the community, and as you and I discussed, I feel like when you have those New Hampshire connections, that gives you definitely a leg up in the race. Also notable, there is a candidate who is running, who is also in the middle of a case, because he entered the Capitol on January 6th and drank a bottle of wine. And he was an interview at, several months ago and said that he would be running against Annie Custer. And then he thought that was a state representative district. But, of course, she is, in fact, our U.S. congressional representative. But he did go ahead and file with the FEC and say he's running. That's Jason Riddle. So a little bit of a range there between the two candidates, for sure. And then, as you mentioned, there are other people who have filed as well. Yeah, and, uh, Chris, that all brings us to the redistricting issue in the state of New Hampshire. It's passed in the New Hampshire House and the Senate. 
Uh, in a nutshell, uh, and you can expand on this, Anna, but it would uh, appear to make District 1 more Republican and District 2 even more Democratic. Uh, yes. So now it's on to Governor Sununu, who says, uh, well, let's see if it passes his smell test. So uh, your thoughts about the redistricting uh, bill? Ah, the mythic smell test. That was a comment that Governor Sununu made several months ago, and it has been brought up many times since then. But it was only recently that he actually did make a comment about the congressional redistricting and and expressed some skepticism, was, was saying that it did look kind of partisan. He wasn't really a fan. Now, that's a far cry from saying, I will veto this if it comes across my desk. But it, it maybe will give enough concern among Republicans thinking, oh, yeah, we really want to have a bill that's signed. We don't want to have to try to override a veto, which we then, you know, we, there's no way we'd get the Democrats in the House. So maybe we'll see some changes to the map when it moves over to the Senate. It has already passed the House of Representatives, the State House, and as you mentioned, it does absolutely concentrate more Republican voters in District 1 and more Democratic voters in District 2. And and I, I don't think anyone on the right is denying that. You even have some state representatives who have said openly, that's fine, that that's, that's our goal. It, it's okay that we're grouping people with similar politics together in the same area. Other people argue that, well, now you're moving several seacoast towns into District 2, which is mostly western and northern New Hampshire. They have nothing to do with each other. So there's a lot of different ways you can look at this and think about it, but I don't think anyone is debating the fact that it will make it much harder for a Democrat to win District 1 and almost impossible for a Republican District 2, where it's already very difficult. So I guess the the Republicans are pretty much, uh, you know, throwing, uh, who drew, drew the map, by the way, uh, they're kind of throwing out Division Two, say, you know, well, we're going to lose Division Two no matter what. So let let's pack Division One. Right? I mean, uh, District One. That does that does seem to be the, the playbook at this point. And yeah. interestingly, though, current state rep- or state U.S. representative, U.S. Representative Chris Pappas, Democrat, represents District One. This has not deterred him at all from running for re-election in District 1. Mm-hmm. And some people speculated maybe he would drop out and run against the new for governor, or he'd consider some different position. But nope, he has announced his re-election campaign, and he is moving forward and says that he's confident that even if they do more move more Republicans in and Democrats out, that he can still win and represent District 1. So there was much speculation about that, as you mentioned. Now, who do you hear on the Democratic side that may take on uh, Governor Sununu? This is a race where I am a little surprised I have not heard more chatter yet, because as we discussed earlier, the timeline is getting short, and usually people start those announcements right after the holidays, because the idea is, oh, you take time with family, and you think it over, and then boom, you got to go as soon as the new year hits. So I have heard some talk about uh, former Senate President Donna Susi. I have heard some talk about, you know, is is there uh, another former candidate we could bring in? There was a brief moment where people were talking about former Governor John Lynch. He was pretty quick to squash that one, but there was a brief moment where even Senator Lou D'Alessandro on on Twitter was saying, hey, let's let's make this happen. Let's bring back Lynch, which, of course, he was very popular. So, yeah, haven't really been hearing very loud noise on that at all, and it's possibly because... Everybody knows it's going to be a pretty difficult race, considering Governor Sununu does have very high approval ratings, and the past challenge attempt at challenging with Senator Dan Feltis, unfortunately, it was a pretty large margin, and they called the election very early in the night. Yeah. So nobody has declared yet, correct? 
I mean, uh, correct. Yep, yeah, not, not even marginal candidates, right? Uh, 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 no, as we speak, I am hesitating because it's possible that Karen Testerman said she would rechallenge Sununu on the Republican side. I am not sure, but on the Democratic side, I am not aware of any declared candidates. Okay, yeah, so, so there you go. And uh, another issue, I think, uh, Anna, of controversy and confusion uh, in the state right now is abortion. Where does that stand at the moment on that uh, hot button issue? Very hot button issue and also some important bills coming through related to that. So last budget cycle, it was signed this summer, included a ban on abortion after 24 weeks and with no exceptions for rape or incest or fetal, uh, not fatal fetal anomalies. It did also include an ultrasound requirement before every abortion. So this was notable because it was really the first abortion restriction passed in New Hampshire in years and years and years. And Governor Sununu says, I am pro-choice, but he also said, that this is a reasonable restriction against late-term abortions, and I'm fine signing this as part of the budget package. So now you have abortion bills that are coming out that go in two directions. There are some bills that the legislature will vote on in the coming months that would increase restrictions. For example, a bill to ban abortion after fetal heartbeat, which would just be a few weeks into a pregnancy. Then there are bills that would go in the other direction, either repealing this law altogether or creating a constitutional right around reproductive decisions. And then there's right down the middle, you have some bills that want to sort of just tweak the law or freeze the law where it is. So, for example, there's two bills that would ban any new abortion restrictions. They say, going forward, this is it. You just, you have the 24-week ban, you have the parental notification requirements if it's a minor seeking an abortion. Beyond that, that's it. No more. And then there's other bills that would look to just repeal the ultrasound requirement. Change that a little bit. The twist last week was there was a bill that had at least one Republican in committee vote for it that would have repealed just the ultrasound mandate. And at the last minute, the speaker ruled that that amendment was, quote unquote, non-germane. He basically said it wasn't related enough to the original bill. And so that squashed that vote that might have passed. It, it's one of the, because ultrasound, anytime you put mandate in, it could potentially affect insurance costs. Governor Sununu said he'd be in favor of repealing the ultrasound mandate. So that might have passed, but the speaker put the kibosh on that with that sort of parliamentary move. Anna Brown, we said at the top that there was a lot to talk about. We talked about a lot. We might have missed some things, I don't know, along the way, but I think uh, you covered it all very, very well. And we always uh, appreciate uh, your insight. And uh, we uh, thank you for that and, and hope to have you back in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even touch on affordable housing I know, or there, other drug policy. Man, always well, plenty to talk about. I, it's a pleasure. I promise you, we will. We will, Anna. <laughs> in the, All right. In the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ken. Anna Brown, the Director of Research and Analysis at Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. And don't miss their Facebook page either, folks, because you can respond to some questions uh, that are posed that uh, generate lots of great conversation and feedback from uh, the folks who uh, log on to that Facebook page, Citizens Count, and uh, citizenscount.org with some great uh, you know, websites in terms of uh, newspapers and online publications that, uh, that cover the state of New Hampshire. Kale and Company on WKXL, presented by Weed Family Automotive, WeedFamilyAutomotive.com, WKXL, New Hampshire Talk Radio, 
talking about what matters to you. Welcome back. We are really heading down the home stretch of this edition of Kale & Company. I do want to remind you, though, that uh, Good Life, uh, the great uh, spot in Concord that has uh, lots of uh, super programs and activities for folks over 50 years of age, is having their annual book sale. It's ongoing right now through the 21st of January. Stop by, and they have some great books at very reasonable prices at Good Life, located uh, on 254 uh, North State Street in Concord in the Smokestack Center. So check it out if you would like to uh, buy some reasonably priced books to benefit Good Life. That will do it. Thanks to Anna Brown for being with us today here on Kale & Company. We are presented by Weed Family Automotive, weedfamilyautomotive.com. We invite you to join us next time for Kale & Company.